From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While spring football gives us an annual opportunity to get a sneak peek at what's to come in the fall, Pro Day is the yearly reminder of the often great talents we no longer get to see in the swamp. Some of these large-scale workouts are more consequential than others, and given the hype surrounding a generational talent like Kyle Pitts, Wednesday's event at the indoor practice facility drew quite a crowd. On today's show, We'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss the highlights and surprises from Pro Day, a tumultuous start to the offseason for men's basketball, the ascension to the top of the heap by men's tennis, and favorite vacation destinations in the PAT. Then, All-American gymnast Alyssa Bauman stops by to share her story and the incredible resolve it's taken to recover from multiple setbacks throughout her career now sitting on the cusp of achieving the ultimate team goal of a national title. But first, Pro Day has been hotly anticipated for months, especially by those who follow the NFL draft intently and wait with bated breath to see which players can deliver on the measurables in a controlled setting. Given the presence of first-round caliber players like Kyle Pitts, Kadarius Toney, and Kyle Trask, Scott opened our roundtable by detailing some of the dignitaries in attendance. I think 31 of the 32 NFL teams were represented. Adam, you had four head coaches there. Matt Rule from Carolina. Uh, obviously, Urban Meyer from the Jaguars. Zach Taylor from the Bengals. And Brian Flores from the Dolphins. And, of course, you know you have a lot of scouts and the offensive coordinators or uh, assistant coaches. Brian Johnson was there. Now the Eagles quarterbacks coach. Doug Nussmeyer was there. Now the Cowboys quarterbacks coach. And Josh McDaniels, the Patriots uh Offensive coordinator was there. So a lot of familiar faces that fans uh, know. Uh, but, you know, what it symbolized to me more than anything, Adam, was that, uh, you know, Florida, it was probably the most buzz around a Florida Pro Day in quite a while. A large part of that's obviously because of Kyle Pitts. I mean, anytime you have a, a player who he's garnering kind of attention that Florida hasn't had really in a long time, and he's, he's set to become the – Highest drafted Gators offensive skill position player. I'm going to just test you guys right off the bat. When's the last time the Gators had an offensive skill position player drafted in the top 10? Ooh. In the top 10? I'm going to say before you, I'm going to say, I think Taylor Jacobs. Well, Actually, Fred Fred Taylor in 98 was ninth. Yep. The, but you, you, both of you got half the name right. Taylor Jacobs. And Fred Taylor, but there's another Taylor that you missed. Remember Travis Taylor, the receiver. Oh, wow. Okay. In 2000, he's the last uh, Gators offensive skill position player to be drafted in the top 10. Uh, and barring some unforeseen development like Kyle Pitts deciding that he wants to be an astronaut instead <laughs> of a football player, he's going to be in the top 10, possibly as high as the top five. I mean, and Mel Copper, he sent out a tweet today. I mean, you know, Mel Copper, he is what he is. He, he, some people love him. Some people hate him. But there's no denying the man is kind of like the godfather of 
draft coverage, at least from the TV side. He invented uh, it. He invented draft prospecting, he pretty, essentially. He pretty much did. And here is what he said on Kyle Pitts today. Kyle Pitts is my highest graded tight end ever. And he capitalized E-V-E-R. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, that's after the tape came down of uh, Kyle Pitts running a 4.440. Uh, so we are we already know that the, the guy is going to be a good player, but he said that, you know, he wanted to run a sub 4.540 today. He ran a 4.44. I think I said just four. He ran a 4.44. Uh, and that was really one of the highlights from uh, Gators Pro Day. Obviously, that generated a lot of interest. Another guy, Kadarius Tony, he ran a four three eight forty. So he even bettered Kyle Pitts, and he also uh, had a great broad jump of eleven feet four inches, and that stacks up really, really well compared to some of the greatest players we've heard of. I mean, he he he's out there in his freak range. But here's a guy that surprised a lot of people. Marco Wilson was unbelievable today. Probably had the biggest pro day overall of anybody just from the standpoint of who who elevated his stature the most. He had a vertical jump that uh, is, the I think, the second best of any player in the country this year. Wow. Pro days, 43 and a half inches. Uh, bench pressed. 26 what, what, what how much weight did they do chris i think it's 225 yeah 225 he bitch pressed it 26 times uh for a 61194 guy that's big tj slayton we interviewed him afterwards he says man i got done i did 27 and marco gets on there and does 26 i mean <laughs> he just didn't expect that and then i think really the vertical jump just blew people away but then he goes out and the official times on his four uh, his 40 was 437. So he actually beat Tony. He did it wow. twice. So, I mean, you just looking at it, you could tell he had really been taking these last three months seriously. I mean, he was he was probably in the best shape, you know, any of us have ever seen him. And he knew he had a lot at stake today. I mean, we all know how his career ended at Florida. Gator fans, uh, he's not exactly their favorite guy right now. And he's he probably won't be if ever again. But he certainly helped his case with NFL scouts. They're, they're going to ask him a lot about that shoe incident. But we all know that in the big picture, that's not going to matter at all to them if they think they can he can help their team. So I just thought Marco Wilson really uh, kind of stole some of the show uh, and both behind the other guys uh, with Trask and Pitts and, and Tony. Uh, Trask had a good day. Uh, he said, you know, his goal today was just to show people that he didn't have a a weak arm and was not a statue back there. That's what he keeps hearing. Uh, and I think you did a good job there, but uh, a lot of X Gators there too, Adam. Uh, here's a, here's one that I didn't expect to see today. Matt Elam actually participated in the defensive back drills. And obviously his nephew, Kair is one of the better Gators players. And last time I saw Matt was up in the, at the season opener in Ole Miss. I was waiting on somebody to gate and here he comes in with the Elam family and just said hi to him briefly. But he's been playing for the Tucson Sugar Skulls of the Indoor Football League and hasn't played NFL since 2016. So if you're looking for a little different flavor of uh, pro day, that's certainly – I didn't expect that. 
Martez Zyby was out there still trying to get a shot. Adam Schuler had a few of those X skaters uh, with an opportunity to work out in front of the uh, scouts and general managers and the uh, coaches. But, uh, you know, Dan Mullen talked about that a little afterward. Like he says, you only have a, a few windows at this uh, and a few opportunities. So if he gets a call from a team or uh, someone say, hey, can, we, can this guy work out at your all's pro day? Uh, he said, yeah, let him have that chance. And that's why some of those guys were there. As far as what the, the future Gators will look like, we saw an addition to the staff this past week, Scott, a familiar name, Corey Bell, coming back into the fold, but this time really a focus on recruiting, player development, and, and helping on that side. Yeah, it's an example of a, a guy. He's been defensive backs coach at UCF the last three years. They obviously had a coach and change. He was the Gators uh, defensive backs coach or cornerbacks coach, I think, back in 2017. Jim McElwain's last season, he went down to UCF with Randy Shannon uh, on the defensive staff, and now he's back. You know, it, we we continue to see it in the college football, Adam. I mean, these these coaching staffs and the support staff they seem to increase every year. And uh, I'm sure from Dan Mullen's perspective, when you can add a guy like Corey Bell with a lot of recruiting ties in Florida, uh, South Florida specifically, uh, a behind the scenes guy, but he obviously knows the X's and O's on the field. He has a lot of contract or contacts in recruiting. So, uh, you know, that was, a, a like you said, a familiar face. So Corey Bell is being added to the football staff. We saw a subtraction to the basketball staff in the last week in a move that you teased last week, Chris, was imminent. Uh, there were some other moves that I think a lot of people expected, others that no one expected. Kind of take us through the, the last week in Gator basketball. I know it's set the, the Twitterverse ablaze. Yeah, I mean, I got to figure out, you know, what we talked about last week versus what we talked about this week. I think um, when we spoke last week, I'm, I'm, I know Trey Mann had announced for the NBA, and I think Quez Glover and perhaps Asai Osifu had said they were going. Uh, Noah Locke joined the uh, club, as did Omar Payne. Now, um, there were some initial exit meetings that seemed to indicate um, – Maybe one or two of these guys may, may have stayed and they may, may have, and they ended up probably changing their mind. Noah Locke, surprise to some people, uh, wants to finish his career elsewhere. Uh, Omar Payne, um, a guy who's just, you know, he just hasn't had a whole lot of consistency here. He had a couple really, really good games. Everyone remembers the Auburn game um, as a freshman. And in this past year, he played really well in the big upset against Tennessee when Colin Castleton was a late game scratch. Just, I mean, he's four points and, and three and a half rebounds a game. Um, Noah Locke, obviously, is if he had stayed around, he was going to join the thousand point club here. Going to be one of the all time great uh, three point shooters in this in this program's history. He'll play elsewhere. I mean, the number now it's it. Colin Castleton also uh, announced while he said he's he put out a tweet early in the as soon as the offseason ended, he was sticking around. He's decided to put his name in the underclassman draft, and that's and that's not a bad move for him because what that does is it doesn't so much as say he's going it's it's saying he gets to go work out he hasn't he's, he announced he's not hiring an agent and you know he gets feedback of what he needs to work on so uh maybe that with that in mind he can come back and be the best version of himself next season but you know you're not going to predict what's going to happen with these guys um as of wednesday morning um when i awoke there were 1026 names in the transfer portal hmm. okay uh, last year for the whole offseason, it was 1,023. So this is a new record. That shouldn't be a surprise. This is college basketball in 2021. 
Um, so Florida is right now, it looks like the, the number right now is, is five uh, leading. It could be more. Uh, we mentioned the coach, Jordan Mincy, got the head coaching job at Jackson University. Both Al Pinkins and Darius Nichols are in the mix for other Division One jobs that are open right now. So, you know, this is this is going to be a, uh, a process in terms of uh, reworking not just the roster, but also the coach's office, I think, because um, uh, Mike hasn't done anything on the front of replacing Jordan yet. Um, you know, we'll play and wait for the rest of this stuff to play out. The basketball season is still going on, so I imagine there are going to be more names in the transfer, transfer portal uh, elsewhere. And, you know, I'm not going to rule out there, there's, there, there's going to be any more here, but it is – it's been a, a, a season of an off season of significant attrition, and it's only what eight or nine days old, ten days old. Yeah. Um, and I think the wave of one after another, one tweet, thank you Gator Nation for all this stuff, and one tweet after another, it's got the fans in an uproar a little bit, you know. And and that's that that's fair. Uh, but I just said a thousand names in the transfer portal. That's almost three a school. So. Um, now that you can transfer and not have to sit out, and, and it looks like the NCAA is going to roll that rule over, you get one freebie, uh, that's the way it is now. And if you play, say you're a freshman or a sophomore and you're playing 15 minutes a game, and your junior year is your you, – those are your developmental years. Your junior year is the step you take. Well, if, if you don't think that was good enough, you know, you're not sticking around. I mean, that's, that's the mentality now. You got your guys – your parents, you got your co- AAU coach saying, well, I don't, I don't really like his role right now. So we can go over there and play this much right now. And is the grass greener on the other side? Well, I guess you got to go and find out. Um, but uh, in terms of social media has not been kind the last week, but the facts are still the facts. Uh, 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 you know, Florida is the only team to go to the last four NSA tournaments in the Southeastern conference. They're one of six uh, teams in the country to win a game the last, uh, the last four years. I know those those aren't going to set people on fire. In fact, the more you talk about them, the more it probably irritates fans because the standard people think is to do a lot better than that. I, in my opinion, the standard at Florida is to make the tournament every year, and then every few years you make a little run, okay, or make some kind of a run, hopefully a big one. Um, I think that's more realistic at a place like here than uh, people that think that you're supposed to make the Final Four every year. That's the standard at Kentucky. How they do this year? Uh, obviously it's, that's a disaster season, but, um, and Kentucky is having guys that Kentucky got is, is, is having guys leave, uh, Indiana, I think is having five guys have bolted. I think Ole Miss is at six, um, Arkansas, I think last year brought in seven transfers. So this is a different way to build rosters. Now it's a different way to accrue talent. Maybe that's the way to go for Florida right now, especially in this, in this year transition. I know it's the way they're going to go because, it's too late to get any really good high school players. And they're, they're, those, those guys out there in these mid-major programs are good players. Uh, Canyon Berry was a really good player here. Igor Korlachov was a really good player here. Those were mid-major guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Tyree Appleby wasn't, was far from perfect. Same with Anthony DeRucci. But they came, and I think they'll be better players next season. If you can, if you can get guys like that, get them in – and have an off season like they didn't have last year, uh, working out with the strength coach, individual instruction, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, everyone else is going to have it. If the Gators can have it, they're going to they're gonna be a lot better for it. But right now uh, they need to get some players, and in a, within a week they may need to get some coaches. So it's kind of – we'll see what happens. 
Yeah, there's so much happening right now. I, I guess what even I'm, I'm trying to figure out is when do we expect things to stop and then start? So, for example, what date would you expect the attrition to end? And then what's the window for then people coming in? Is there any sort of timeline that fans can sort of look toward? Well, in, in the perfect world, everyone finishes their, their academic d- duties at their respective places because that's, that's what has to happen for that school. Because if someone says, I don't want to play here anymore and transfers, he, he needs to be in good academic standing to transfer to begin with. Mm-hmm. And he also needs to leave good academic standing behind relative to the uh, uh, academic progress report, the APR everyone talks about. And while Florida has lost uh, a number of players the last few years, uh, three here, four a couple years ago, um, they've maintained their APR because they've got them out of here in good academic standing. So uh, in terms of new players coming in, obviously it has to be at the end of the semester. But um, you're, you're already seeing on Twitter um, uh, guys landing in particular venues. Uh, one, the, the number one uh, transfer portal guy, if I'm not mistaken, everyone wanted was this, uh, uh, this guard from um, Davidson that broke all of Stephon Curry's records. He's going to Kentucky. So that's, a, that's, that's one of your markers that starts right there. Um, so, uh, it'll, it'll happen soon. We could be talking next week about, uh, a guy who, who decides who announces he's going to come to Florida. Um, I don't know if we'll be able to talk about it cause it all has to be clear through compliance and such, but I'm looking at a list of one, two, three, four, five, six different uh, guys who are in the transfer portal that I happen to know that Florida is involved with, and they're all from uh, high major programs. So, um, I can't talk about them. Uh, when we when we can talk about them, we will we will discuss them ad nauseum. All the names that have been bandied about, and uh, one name that doesn't get talked about as much is Keontae Johnson, because again he sort of faded back toward the bench in that that role he served throughout the season. But there obviously remain questions from a lot of people: Does he have a future on the court? Um, tell us about Keontae as he fits into this this bigger, very complicated puzzle we're discussing. I mean, he's it's quiet on the Keontae Johnson front. Um, his situation isn't a whole lot different than, say, when we talked about one after I did that, that interview with him in January. I would say that it, it, the situation is just further along in that he still has a battery of tests to take, a battery of doctor visits, and it, it, the, time, the time frame has not changed. It will be the summer, maybe June, maybe July, before he is cleared to do what you would consider um, full-go basketball activities, assuming everything goes well between now and then as he gets these EKGs, these stress tests, he gets on these treadmills and does these things that he's allowed, he's allowed to do incrementally, probably more. But uh, right now there's no decision to be made on that front. And he's in terms of players coming back, scholarship players, his situation is status quo. He's a Florida Gator um, for the, for now. Obviously we'll continue talking basketball here as we go along. Lots of news this week. Surely there'll be more news next week. We will discuss it when it happens. Uh, I want to turn our attention out to sport we rarely get to talk about here, but uh, but men's tennis. It's a program that I think is interesting from the standpoint of we know about the long history of the women's tennis program under Roland Thornquist, national champions multiple times over, always at that you know elite level. And yet in the shadow for quite a while has been the men's tennis program. And I remember before Brian Shelton came in, uh, when Andy Jackson was leading the program, you know, Florida every year was they were always in the you know, 
like round of round of 16 NCAA tournament. And that was kind of where they plateaued. And this is when Jeremy Foy was still involved. He said, you know what? I think we can be better. We're going to make a change. We need to be better than this. And sure enough, Brian Shelton has the program number one in the country. So it, it didn't happen overnight. But again, that long-term vision of every program being at that top level seemingly has now come to fruition with men's tennis. Well, it has. It's like you said, it's taken some time. And uh, I think for a while, it, it, it kind of just continued under Brian until he got his program going. And then, of course, in 2019, they did make the final four under him for the first time. And and they really liked their team going into last season, uh, thinking that that was the year that maybe they could win that national title. And then, of course, the pandemic struck and uh, they lost some uh, uh, key pieces, but they also brought enough back and like guys like Sam Rafis and Johan Engelson, upperclassmen who provide stability. And they added some newcomers or younger guys over that period uh, you know, and now here they are. Like you said, they're number one. I was out there a couple of weeks ago, Adam, uh, in a big match they had at home against Tennessee, which at the time both teams were actually Tennessee was ranked third and Florida was 10th. And so you looked at it as the kind of the SEC uh, leader, whoever came out of that. Florida won that day, and uh, they've been going up ever since. And like you said, now they're number one, and uh, they still have some regular season left, but I, I don't think. You know, the, for those who pay really close attention to this team in college men's tennis, it won't be a surprise if, if they're in that hunt uh, come, uh, you know, in the spring, in the finals. So uh, that's the goal. And right now they're playing uh, like a team on a mission. So we'll see if they can finally do it. We'll certainly keep tabs on men's tennis as they get uh, closer to their championship season, which, again, is not really till late summer. That doesn't happen until June. It's usually the last sport that finishes playing. Uh, but sur- surely they have a good chance as any to be there at the end. I want to turn our attention now to our PAT. I had a really fun PAT schedule. I want to talk about Godzilla and Kong and guilty pleasures. Then Scott said, you know what, Adam? I want to do something different today. So, Scott, it is your PAT. I'll let you set it up for us. Take it away, please. Knowing you, Adam, and your PAT style, we are going to talk about Kong and Godzilla at some point. (laughs) So, and this was only on my mind because, you know, I just took it with the travel situation like it's been for the last year. I haven't really been out of Gainesville much. Uh, I know maybe you guys have been out more than me. But uh, it was nice to get away last weekend. Some of my family took a little trip up to Savannah, Georgia, not too far, a little over three hours from Gainesville. And we're, I'm really, I've been to Savannah a couple of times, but I had never really spent any time downtown and exploring. And what the focus of this PAT, I guess I, I should include that, it made me think of uh, places that you, you visited before and really liked enough. And then you wanted to go back there as soon as you could or – you know, if times pass, you've actually been back there several times because it's one of your favorite cities, a place where you don't live. And we're gonna we're gonna keep it in the in the U.S. borders here. Uh, so, I think Savannah is kind of gonna be that new place for me for a while. I really enjoyed it enough, and I'm one of those people that when I kind of get into something, I kind of dive deep into it. If I really like it. And I remember we've all heard of the movie, The Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, or the book that preceded and made the movie. So we are going to talk about movies here. I remember that movie book coming out. I think the book came out while I was in college. And the movie came out three or four years later. 
I never read the book or saw it. And then we're up there and I'm in this old bookstore by the square in Savannah last week. And I saw the book there and I'm like, man, this would be cool to read. And so I started reading it and it just, it just really resonated with me as we were up there. And also, it, I don't know, it's, there's a part of it's, if you like Southern culture and mm -hmm. some of the mythic, uh, I guess, tells about Savannah and how it fits in the, our country's history. If you're in the history, I guess is what I'm saying. It's your kind of city. So uh, it's going to be a place where I want to go back soon and explore some more. So that will be, uh, and, you know, we all have those places for a while. For me, it was San Francisco. I remember the first time I ever went to San Francisco. I really, really loved it. I went back there, you know, a few more times, either on vacation or for work. And, you know, every time I went, I enjoyed it. So we all have those spots, right? I would always do the same thing now. You go to San Francisco, you're going to stay downtown. But I mean, I don't know if I'd stay downtown now. I hear San Francisco's awful now. But you're going to go, you're going to drive over the Golden Gate Bridge to uh, Sausalito. All right. And on your and on your way over for, to Sausalito or on your way back, either one, I'm going to go to a place called Sonoma's, which has some incredible uh, clam chowder over there. It's right on the water. It's on stilts in the water. It overlooks the bay looking back at San Francisco in this little kind of harbor area, real small, a lot, uh, very touristy in terms of small shops and all this stuff. Really, really cool. And then on the way back, you drive up Marin Boulevard and you do that loop under the bridge and you go up and all of a sudden you're looking down on the Golden Gate Bridge and you can keep going higher and higher until your stomach can handle it, as far up as your stomach can handle it, and look back at the city with the, uh, the, the bridge down below you. Sometimes the the clouds are below the bridge. You've seen that view before. Sometimes they're above you and it's looking pretty, but you see the city in the background and the Bay Bridge in the background. And there's, you know, Oakland and Berkeley in the distance and what have you. And that is just to me, that's something that you have to do almost every time you go to San Francisco because it is just a breathtaking kind of uh, postcardy kind of thing. And that's something that I always do when I go there. And, it, you know, it takes a few hours. You take an afternoon to do it but it's worth it. And uh, I think that's might've been where I first fell in love with Sierra Nevada pale ale was uh, at Sonoma's uh, sitting <laughs> on the border, looking out at the seals and the pelicans and what have you. But that's my, uh, that's my destination stop. That's uh, that's my Savannah. I'll, uh, I'll close this with an answer. Sure. To disappoint both of you. Cause that's what I, I live to disappoint you. Um, can I give you Vegas Vegas. Oh, shoot. Here's the thing, though. I don't like to gamble and I don't enjoy drinking, yet I love Vegas. And I haven't been in almost 10 years, so I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it. But the energy around Vegas, the entertainment, just everywhere you look, it's the, the, the faux grandeur of the place, right? To walk across the street, you're in New York and now you're in Paris and now you're in Venice. Now you're in a, in a pyramid. It's completely fabricated and there's nothing authentic about it. But that's the amazing thing is that they built this incredible, ridiculous monstrosity in the middle of the desert. And it has something for everybody, theoretically, including lots of Cirque du Soleil shows, of which I love. So I know that's not like it. I wish I had an answer for you. like, oh, I, I really I, I pine for the the cornfields in Kansas or something. No, I. I'm I'm too simple for that. That's all. That's all I can do for you guys. I don't have a problem with the answer. Is it is is Vegas uh, uh, fake and all that? Yeah, but I mean, you can have fun there. <laughs> <laughs> you can yes. definitely have fun there. A lot, a lot like Orlando, just in a smaller space. 
Orlando with a gambling. I mean, Orlando is yeah. a you know it's very fake. Yeah. My favorite thing about Orlando, it was built yesterday and it could be going tomorrow. I mean, that's just how the nature of things there. I couldn't have ended it better myself. So uh, I will say thank you to both of you guys. And uh, hopefully this is giving everyone listening a chance to think about a place they'd like to return to uh, once it's safe to do so here in the near future. But until that time, make sure you keep checking in on the Gators by going to FloridaGators.com and following these guys on Twitter at GatorScott, at GatorsChris. And we will talk to you next week thank you guys let's hope we can all return to sporting events and mass that would be a good start thank you adam nearly every gymnast who gets into the sport is inspired and driven by the pursuit of olympic glory that singular moment every four years where gymnastics sits atop the sports world uncontested but no matter how hard you work and how far you go there are still so many roadblocks that can knock you off that path a fate few know better than Alyssa Bauman. As she and the top-seeded Gators prepare for NCAA regionals this weekend in Athens, step one on the path to a national championship, we spoke to the senior star about her gritty origin story and how it made her the athlete and person she is today. Yeah, I'm from Dallas, Texas, and I'm one of three girls. Um, My sisters are both younger than me. One of them is a gymnast at the University of Georgia. The other one is in high school. She just plays volleyball, cheer. And then my parents never did gymnastics, so I'm not exactly sure why we got into this, but they're athletic growing up. And my mom just kind of put me in classes when I was three years old and I fell in love with it. And my sister kind of followed in my footsteps and she fell in love with it too. And they never expected us to be where we are right now, but they're the most supportive parents and really, really proud of both of us. So you said that gymnastics wasn't necessarily in the family background, but I guess there was something once you started that made you take to it. So what was it about the sport that you, you engaged with to the degree that you wanted to really start pursuing it? I did gymnastics and tennis growing up, and my mom actually wanted me to do tennis more than gymnastics. Then one day I threw my racket across the court and I (laughs) screamed that I hated tennis. And my mom was so embarrassed. She was like, we're not going back there. We can't show our faces there again. And then she asked me why I did that. And I told her it was because I was afraid I would be tired for gymnastics. Wow. And she knew she was like, okay, she really likes this one more. And I think I just loved how gymnastics was like so fun. I feel like other sports are doing the same thing um, like over and over in gymnastics. There's so many different things for me to do and I was good at it. So that helped. And I really liked the challenge of gymnastics. As far as your sister getting into it, how big a role did you play in that? Was it like she just wanted to go to the gym because you were going to the gym and then sort of developed the, the same passion for it? Yeah, my mom was always at the gym. And so when my sister was just two, um, my mom asked if there was any like sort of class that she could put her in. And so she was the first mommy and me class. And so while I was practicing, my mom just kind of put her in classes so that she could have something to do while I was doing that. And then she started liking it too. And when we started getting older, she just kind of wanted to do the same thing that I was doing. And so we both kind of fell in love with it and we both were really good at it. But then she chose a different path for college, which I think 
came from her always following what I did and she wanted to break away from that a little bit and create her own path. And I wanna, I'm gonna come back around to that in a few minutes, but I'm curious growing up in terms of competition, right? Like whenever I talk to, let's say a basketball player and they'll say, yeah, my older brother got me into it and then we would compete against each other. It's obviously a little bit different with gymnastics because you can't, you can't, you know, we're not going to go outside and go head to head on beam, right? So what does the competition look like when you've got that, that sibling back and forth, particularly in gymnastics? Yeah. So we were always maybe like a level away from each other. So we weren't necessarily competing together and doing the same skills, but it was very competitive between us because we, she wanted to be like me and I always wanted to be like her example. And so if she ever got a skill and I didn't have that skill, I would like go over and like try to do that skill. Cause I was like, there's no reason my sister should be able to do it. And I, can. <laughs> so, I taught her everything she knows. <laughs> yeah. I was like, where'd she get that from? <laughs> I don't even do that. So let me go try. But you know, we always just wanted to be the best that we could. And Luckily, we didn't have to compete against each other too much because I think that would have been a bit weird, but it's actually not not weird at all in college competing against her. And I get to still see her like a few times a year. And it's fun because we kind of joke with the competitiveness with it. And we're just, we try to have fun with it and use it to motivate each other. And I think it really pushed each other growing up, um, her seeing me work that hard and then me seeing her like, on my heels all the time trying to be, you know, as good as me. And um, so it really pushed both of us. In terms of, you know, early on trying to pick up skills and, you know, I know that gyms are designed with all sorts of ways to make sure you don't get hurt when you're trying things, foam pits, et cetera. Do you remember any embarrassing moments early on or when you thought maybe you could do something you weren't quite ready for and regretted it afterward? I was actually really scared of certain skills um, growing up and even into like the foam pit, I would be so scared. And my coach would send me up on this beam and we would dismount into the foam pit and I wouldn't go for it. And I would stand up there for hours every day. She would send me up to that same beam and I would stand there for hours and wouldn't go for it. And, um, finally like got over that fear, but there is definitely a lot of different moments. I mean, splitting the beam, hitting my face on the bar and getting bruised. And um, I mean, actually not in training, but one that sticks out that now I look back and laugh at was my first U.S. championship. Um, I was just 12 years old and I was the youngest competitor. And I fell six times. And one of my falls was on a split jump on beam. Mm. <laughs> so that was pretty embarrassing. And um, now I look back and I was laughing, but I was not laughing back then. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that. Um, you talk about competing at, at, at national championships, and obviously you go from being a, a youth gymnast to being on the elite path. What do you remember about going to the world championships, winning a gold medal in, in 2014 and, and the path to getting there? Yeah, that seems like yesterday and forever ago at the same time, but it was a very, very harsh path to world championships. It elite was another world and it was very structured and very hard on your body and a lot of training. And I was excited that I finally made national team the year before that. And I just remember going to worlds 
I didn't expect to be going to Worlds. I was just happy to make the national team the year before. And um, so I was excited to be part of a team with so many great gymnasts. And I had looked up to some of those gymnasts for a long time. And so I think I was also like the youngest one on that team. And um, I was just excited to be able to be a part of something like that. And that's definitely something that's going to stick with me forever. It's the biggest accomplishment of my elite career and something that I kind of go back and I tell myself um, if I'm ever lacking confidence, I'm like, you're a world champion. So it's something that no one can take away from me. And um, yeah, it was a special moment. You talk about some of the, the names and, and the people you got to interact with, people you looked up to. What is that like when you're out there with, you know, the Ali Raismans, the Simone Biles? I mean, some of these the world famous gymnasts and you're there competing with them and pushing each other as you go along. I feel like Simone and I kind of like grew up in the elite world together. And so I was just lucky to be able to watch her. And we were always in the same groups at national team camps and um, she's so fun to be around and, um, I love with her, but Allie, um, came in kind of later in my national team career. And she was someone that I had watched and admired, um, for her gymnastics, for her as a person. And so when she came in, I didn't know like what to think. And then we ended up rooming together a lot and becoming really, really close. And I'm still really close with her. And I look up to her now more as a person. Obviously, her gymnastics was phenomenal, but um, just the way that she was able to help me get through those camps and get through assignments. And um, she was really inspirational in the gym and outside of the gym. Talking about that part of your career, fast forwarding to... 2016 Olympic trials. This is where if people don't know your story, this was a significant turning point. Um, can you take us through what happened as you were getting ready for Olympic trials and what transpired next? Yeah. So um, I had the U.S. Classic, the U.S. Championships. Those went pretty well and I qualified to the Olympic trials and we had maybe a couple weeks in between and it was about four days before we were supposed to get on a plane and fly out to the Olympic trials. And we were training on a set of Jim Nova bars. Cause that was what the Olympics were going to be on. And um, I was doing a bar routine. I remember I was exhausted. Still was trying to do my bar routine. And I did a shaposh and slipped off the bar, came down on my elbow, felt it come out of place. I put it back in myself and just, laid there and crying and I wasn't even crying because of pain. I was crying because I knew, I knew it was over. And, um, then came surgery on my elbow and a long recovery for that. My mom was a PT, so she actually helped me with that recovery. And I've been putting off a wrist surgery for a long time. So I got that done too. So it was a year and a half of just recovery PT um, trying to get back into the gym and it was like a start and stops. I would start doing stuff and it would hurt again. And I'd have to take it easy. And I had to defer from college for a year. I was supposed to go to college in 2016 in that fall, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to contribute anything. Um, and it was, it was going to be hard to even function normally as a student. So I stayed home and called Jenny and I told her, I think this is the best for you. I think this is the best for me. And she agreed. And 
gave me that time and I was able to come back the next year and start my career um, as a Gator. You know, I'm, I'm sure that the ramp up to that mentally and physically when you're trying to get on that, that Olympic path is so strenuous. So setting aside the physical part, because obviously you had your mom to help you and, and the physical part is sort of, I guess, rudimentary, but the mental part of that, what did you do to get through that? Because obviously you're preparing, you think you're going to the Olympics and then you're in a year of recovery and, and you're not where you wanted to be. How did you overcome those challenges? In my mind, it was Olympics, 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 and college was going to come after. And I wasn't even thinking about that at the time. Um, and once I got hurt, I had to completely switch that mindset. And I was like, okay, I don't know if I'm going to be able to be the gymnast that I was before, but my goal is to be everything that I can for the University of Florida. And that is now my Olympics. And that's my biggest thing. And it was a dream of mine to come here. And I just, made that my new goal. And I decided that I wanted to be an inspiration for gymnasts that do get hurt or do go through something and um, have an obstacle. And I wanted to show that it is possible because doctors told me, we don't know if you're going to be able to straighten your arm. We don't know if you're going to be able to do gym like you did before. And he told me I had a 10% chance of straightening my arm all the way again. And my mom just looked at me and she said, okay, we're going to be in that 10%. So that was just my new goal. It was just to come back and prove to everyone that it's possible and you can do it. And I am going to be that strong and I'm going to be um, successful again. You mentioned coming to Florida being a dream. What was it about being a Gator that was such a big deal to you, especially coming from from Dallas? I just remember coming to visit here and I was just 14 years old and I I loved the atmosphere. I'm not sure if I knew what I was looking for in a school at 14 years old. So I was lucky that I chose such a great school. Um, I knew the academics were great. I knew the athletics were great, but I really liked the people here and I loved the team. And when I was watching them, um, it just looked like something that I wanted to be a part of. And now that I'm here, I think it's just, there is no better school. I, in my opinion, I've been to a lot of them. We've traveled to a lot and, Every time we do that, I'm just like, thank God I chose Florida because this is just so much better. And I think it's so cool that at Florida, every team here is so successful. And on every team, there's world champions and there's people going to the Olympics and there's people going to the NFL and the MLB. And it's just you're surrounded by such an elite group of athletes. And I think it's really cool to be a part of that. Uh, fast forwarding to last season, we talked a moment ago about overcoming the mental adversity caused by thinking you're going to do one thing and then life tells you something else. A year ago, you guys were number one in the country, the favorite to win a national championship, and then COVID hits. Um, so again, another big speed bump where you thought you were on this path. How difficult was that for both you and your teammates? And what did you guys do to overcome it? Yeah, it was it was hard and it all happened so fast. Um, we went from being number one and undefeated and we were on a roll. And then it was like, boom, everything stopped and caught us off guard. And then it was two years of not going to nationals as a team. And it was very depressing for a while because you were just like, we were right there and mm. we had it. And 
So then we were like, okay, well, what do we do from here? Do we just give up or are we going to take this and use it to our advantage? And it's going to be that much more rewarding if we go through all of this and all of these challenges and then are able to come away with that national championship at the end of it. And that's what our coaches really talked to us about. And that's what stuck with me because for a while I was just like feeling down and feeling like, again, like this happened again. And um, then my coaches were like, okay, well you have one more year. Like, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to let this be the end and you're never going to get it? Or are you going to take this and knowing that it's harder this year and knowing that it's going to feel better when you win, are you going to use that to your advantage? And I think this team has handled that so well. And we've really been so mentally tough and fought through a lot of things. And so every win that we've had has just been the best feeling. It's when we won at LSU, that was the best feeling. That was the greatest like dual win that I've ever experienced. And then um, to win without four people at our link to pink meet was again, just such a great feeling. And so I think we just need to remember that and use that going forward. In terms of uh, your story on on bars coming full circle, for those that do know your story, it's it's probably because of all the attention you got a few weeks ago uh, when you had that shorthanded meet, which you mentioned, and you were asked very last minute to compete on bars, which you hadn't done in, I believe, five years. Um, can you just take us through that and, and what it was like getting ready for that moment and, and the, the nerves that you had to overcome? So this year I've been training bars, but without the expectation of competing. And, you know, I, I just trained it because I knew this was such a different year and um, things like that could happen. You don't expect them to, but they could. And then we found out two hours before the meet that four girls weren't going to be able to even be there at all. So they sent the lineups and I was in all around and I just kind of took a moment and I was actually glad that we didn't get those lineups the night before because I just would have been stressing the whole night. So I'm, um, I'm happy about that. And it was difficult to be able to um, handle that and go in on bars after not doing it for five years. But I just tried to think like I've competed these past five years. It's not different. I trained this event. I know I'm ready. And um, I was able to do a good bar routine. And I was happy that I was able to do that for the team. For those that haven't seen the clip, you finish the last release, you land, you stick the landing. And then it's just, I mean, it's an explosion of emotion. What do you remember from that moment and and what that meant to you? Um, As soon as I landed, it was just, it was kind of relief. It was, um, I just accomplished one of my biggest goals for myself um, that I set back in 2016, where I wanted to come back on every event. And I didn't think it was going to happen, to be honest. And so once I landed that bar routine, I didn't even care what the score was. And I was just so excited to be able to have competed bars again. And my team realized what that meant to me. And they came up to me and started hugging me. And I just started crying because it just meant so much. And yeah, it was just an overflow of emotions. So when that then appears on SportsCenter and goes viral, 
how crazy was the the reaction to that the feedback you got i don't know there's always you know people say someone random they haven't heard from in years and that's when they come back around is when something like that happens yeah i got so many text messages and <laughs> just nice messages and comments on social media and it was really nice to see because i feel like everyone knew what I had gone through and like so just getting those messages of support and saying you know we're so proud of you and it meant a lot and I was happy that people were able to see that and kind of hear that story because that was my goal originally is to inspire other people and show them that it was possible and so I was happy that it was able to be put out there like that. Um, yeah, I know you spend a, a lot of your time training and especially as, as intense as what you guys do is, but when you do get away from the gym, what are some things you enjoy doing in your free time? I like to shop probably too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like to go to the beach whenever I get a chance. Um, we just got a house in St. Augustine and so I haven't really made it out there yet because of season and everything, but I'm hoping to do that when season's over. And I just like to hang out with friends, you know, do normal stuff, I guess. Um, I did like to read before. haven't been on that as much recently. <laughs> I could probably read some textbooks. That would be good. <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess that's kind of the stuff I like to do. I like to um, cook a little bit. So I'm trying to get into that. So shopping during COVID is challenging. Did you become a, a master of Amazon? Do you have the oh, boxes yeah. coming every day? How, how did you feed that? Oh, yeah. I have every app downloaded on my phone. <laughs> that is what I'm on. And boxes were coming in every single day. And my parents were like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> now they come to my apartment and they don't see that. So that's good. But yeah. Um, Every day I get like an email, like you have a package and I'm like, yikes. <laughs> like, did I order that? I guess I did order that. I guess yeah. I did. <laughs> Forgot about that one. Right. Um, you know, you talked about hitting the textbooks coming up. You are going to finish your career. I know it's been a, it's been a long road for you. Um, as you wrap up your degree in, in sports management, what do you hope to do with that once gymnastics is in the past? I'm looking into a couple of different things with that. Originally, I wanted to be a sports agent. I still do, but I'm also looking into some different options, possibly sports broadcasting um, or working in administration. I'm also kind of interested in working with athletes, especially with the new um, rules with sponsorships and they're eligible mm -hmm. for receiving money now. So I'm kind of interested in that route and seeing what that means for athletes and helping them navigate through that. Um, so yeah, different different things. I haven't really decided on one specific path yet, but just working with athletes in general. Couple of final things for you. At SEC Championships, you became the first three-time beam champion in the history of the SEC. What does it mean to accomplish something like that? And what does it take to consistently nail something as difficult as beam? I can't wrap my head around it. No matter what you say, I'm still not going to understand <laughs> it, but I'm just curious. Um, that was actually a goal I had in mind coming in and I knew I had that opportunity and it was a lot of pressure and I definitely put a lot of pressure on myself for it, but it meant a lot because I was hoping that I would do that. And, um, even before my dismount, I, you probably shouldn't tell yourself this, but I was like, if I stick this dismount, 
<laughs> I have a good chance. And obviously we needed a hit routine so badly too. So that routine was a lot of pressure. And once I stuck that dismount, I was like, thank God. I don't know if it's going to be enough to win the title, but my team just needed that score really, really bad. So um, what does it take to win beam three times at SECs? I, I do not know if I can <laughs> give you a specific answer. It takes a lot of training, a lot of um, mental work. I think we do mental routines all the time and pressure sets and stuff like that. And I think SECs is a lot about stepping up to that pressure and being able to use it to your advantage and not letting the nerves get to you, but also using that adrenaline to kind of push you. You said it's probably not good to be thinking while you're doing it. If I stick this, I'm going to put up this score. What are you supposed to be thinking when you're in something that's that locked in? What is going through your mind for that two minutes, two and a half minutes? You should probably be thinking about like one thing on each skill. You should be telling yourself like one little technical correction and or just have like keywords that you can tell yourself like push, follow through, something like that, something simple. Because when you start to like tell yourself, I need to stick this, then you'll probably try too hard and not stick mm-hmm. it. But sometimes I like doing that to myself because I like to put that pressure on myself because I think I'm able to like step up to the pressure and handle it and it pushes me. Um, So there's different things that work for everyone. I would just say like keeping it simple and having those keywords on each skill. I'm taking key notes here so that I'm (laughs) I'm ready for for this opportunity. Um, Final question for you. I know we've talked a lot about the, the moments throughout your life when you've been right on the precipice of something huge and then something has come up that has knocked you down. Um, as, as we talk today, your team is preparing to make a run in national championship. It's your senior year. I mean, you know, the stars are aligning here. What is it going to take to reach that ultimate goal here over the course of the next few weeks? It's definitely going to take a lot, but nothing that we're not capable of. And coming off of SECs, I think we can look at it in different ways. We can look at it and say, that's not us. And we're going to leave that there and use it to push us for the rest of season. Or we can kind of just slump down after that. But I think this team has fought through so many things already. And I know that we're just going to fight through this one and come back and reset. And moving forward, we don't need I keep telling this team, I say, you don't need to have your greatest, most phenomenal meet to win. I believe that this team's good is better than the next team's great. So I just want this team to be normal and do what they do every day in the gym. And I believe that's going to be enough. Well, it's been an incredible journey for you. We wish you a lot of luck as you hopefully end it on the top of that podium in a few weeks. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at floridagators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators. Gators.